Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. On today's podcast, I'm going to discuss some of the biggest lessons I've learned through the 2021 season. Now that the deer season's been over for quite a bit, I've taken time to reflect and write these things down for myself in the hopes that I can make improvements for the next year. So we'll go through the list. I'll probably dive into some specific examples and also talk about what I'm doing this next year to improve. I try to focus on items that most people can hopefully learn from as well. Some topics are specific to general deer hunting, some to travel hunting, some to trying to hunt older deer, some to hunting with others, some to trail camera strategies, and some uh, just trying to easily film with minimal camera gear. Before we dive in, a quick note about Spartan Forge, which is an app I've been using pretty much all the time for both mapping and hunt intel. I can look at historical weather and wind information, upcoming forecast, machine learning based movement prediction, common browse types in an area, The app allows me to add journaling entries that automatically pair up the weather info for that date, time, and location. I've actually been using that quite a bit for looking at trail camera data. Take a specific trail camera photo, look at the time and date, plug that into the journal and get the weather for that particular photo. And I can use the mapping functionality to navigate in the field, manage waypoints and tracks, look at property boundaries, and view satellite and topo layers to effectively aid in e-scouting. Use the discount code DIY to save 20% on a Spartan Forge membership. All right, so the first couple things that I have on my list are all somewhat related. They have to do with a combination of travel hunting, uh, but also just tags, the number of tags that I have, the number of tags that we have is kind of a group, uh, and also just the ability to manage those tags throughout the year, specifically in the context of also trying to go after, let's say, an older buck. Uh, so <clears throat> definitely one thing that I've been learning is that if you make the decision to try and go after a little bit older deer, it, it's definitely going to take more time on average. Uh, you might get fortunate and be able to put the pieces together and have that happen over a really short time frame. Uh, but I don't think that that should necessarily be the plan. You know, historically over the last several years, I've kind of prioritized travel hunting more and, and getting more tags and being happy with, you know, like whatever deer I end up getting an opportunity at on those particular hunts, um, even if they're not huge, which has been fine with me, you know, venison in the freezer. And, and really the challenge for those types of hunts is not necessarily trying to shoot a big one, but just trying to put the skills to the test, figure out a new piece of land uh, very quickly over, you know, let's say like a three to five day time period and be able to fill one of those tags. Uh, But over the last couple of years, I've also tried to you know, branch over and focus on trying to kill one of the older bucks that I've been able to locate on a given piece of property. Uh, probably won't get into you know too many specifics there, but uh, it definitely takes more planning. It takes more time and it's kind of a numbers game. You know, when I talk to a lot of other people who are really good at shooting bigger deer, they're number one, usually pretty efficient. Uh, but number two, they give themselves a lot of time to focus on that specific tag. And you know, I was talking to, to Bo Martonic on his podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and he was mentioning that for his Pennsylvania tag, uh, 
Like he didn't buy any other tags before that. He's just going to focus on that tag. He ended up filling that tag on, I think it was opening day, but then that allowed him to start branching out to other States. Uh, Jake Bush, same type of thing, filled his in-state tag on the opening day of the season and was, you know, was prepared to hunt as long as he needed to, to fill that tag and then branch out to other States if you get the opportunity. So to put some numbers in perspective for me in the last season, and I, I guess I'll go two seasons back to um, two seasons ago, I didn't necessarily have a specific deer in mind. I ended up shooting the biggest buck of my life, but I would have been happy with, you know, several of the ones that were out there in that particular piece of land that I was hunting. And out of the number of sits that I put in there, the number of mature buck sightings that I had was low. It was basically the, the only opportunity or the first opportunity, I guess I should say at a, a mature buck was the one I ended up filling my tag on. Now go to last year, I put in a lot more dedicated time into hunting and scouting that area, but a lot of those hunts weren't necessarily like targeted hunts. They were maybe hunts where I was filming Sam or we were hunting for does or something to that effect, but not necessarily diving in after one specific buck. The number of times that I did do that type of a hunt and dive in on that one specific deer that I was you know, really hoping to get a chance at, it was six sits. And of those six sits, two of them I had encounters with the, the buck I was after. So 33% likelihood and the timing of that, you know, late October into early November, late October is a little bit more consistent than in early November. Um, that said, if it's still a numbers game here and I put in six sets and 30% of those sets, I have an opportunity. Well, maybe 30% of those opportunities, I actually get an arrow off and I'm able to fill that tag. Well, the more opportunities that I give myself at really good sets, you know, gun high, you know, probability sets where I'm going in there and, and I know I'm going to have a good chance at seeing that deer. The more of those I can have, the more like I am to actually fill that tag. And I really wish this season that I had more than six good sits to be able to throw at, at hunting that particular buck that I was after. Uh, so it made it tough going to as many States as I did, because I felt like I wasn't able to put in as much time as I really wanted to for that given task. And some of those was pre-planned, right? Like the Nebraska trip early season, that was pre-planned. Some of the North Dakota hunts pre-planned. Uh, but then also kind of had like the, the side goal of trying to get back to North Dakota, which never really ended up coming to fruition because of other hunts that I had planned, like the one late season in Iowa uh, or some of the, the later November stuff in uh, hunting in Wisconsin that I might not have had to do had I put more time dedicated in late October, early November uh, to allow me to go fill that tag. So point being trying to go after a big deer and spreading yourself too thin, don't go together well. And I need to make the choice between, do I want to have less tags and spend more dedicated time towards filling those tags? Or do I want to have more tags and just lower my standards for any given tag? And I think on the out of state type tags, I've sort of always had that mindset that I'm, I'm not necessarily after a giant because it's just not realistic on a three to five day hunt to try and find and shoot a really big deer. It's just the odds are stacked against you in so many ways, you know, finding one in that amount of time is hard enough. Um, and then getting an opportunity to kill it is, is the next, you know, you're, you're stacking your odds against you at that point to where if I was really wanting to, to target a big deer on an out of state hunt, I'd want to put in just as much time and effort as I would on an in-state hunt. So 
how I'm going to kind of tackle this next year is fewer tags overall and more dedicated time around the time frames that I know are going to be my best opportunities numbers wise. That means that early season, I'll have one particular goal in mind. I'll be probably hunting in state, probably hunting with a traditional bow, hunting in areas where trail cameras aren't allowed and just kind of using the, the woodsmanship skills and, and really just shooting a, a deer that I have a good shot opportunity at, put some meat in the freezer and Sam will probably do something very similar. We'll be hunting same type of habitats that are easier to be able to figure out in early season because they'll have isolated food sources. And in the past, hunting those areas, we've never really had issues getting on deer, but getting on a big deer is hard. Uh, again, because you can't really do the inventory and you got to put a lot of time out there. Uh, so I'm saying, okay, well, I'll just take that time frame and I'll hunt with a traditional bow. And that'll be my challenge. That'll be my goal. That's That'll be what I want to get out of that hunt. And as we transition more towards that late October time frame, okay, now I'm, I'm dedicating more time, more PTO days during the late October time frame. Uh, same thing with Sam. We're planning a full week where I can just take off and hunt every day if needed. And it won't have to basically do, you know, two days here, three days here, another day here, four days here, where it's kind of spread out. I can really dedicate that time needed to try and fill that tag, uh, with the goal of not really trying to go out of state for any other rut trips until that tag is hopefully filled. And then as we go into late season, then it's more around just kind of like filling whatever tags have yet to be filled. If I didn't fill that early season tag with my traditional bow, maybe I go back in and, and try and fill that tag, um, late season. If I don't fill my late October, early November hunt tag, then maybe I go back in late season and, and try to, to find a, a deer to go after then. Um, uh, but point being, I'm not going to have as many travel hunts lined up to where I want to spend more time out in the same place I have been hunting, but I got to go hunt someplace else because I have this other tag. So I think that'll help just make our season more concise, uh, more, it'll make it easier to plan and it'll make it so that we can, I think, be more effective and, and more focused really on what a specific goal is during that time frame of the hunt. And ultimately, I don't think that the success should go down any, uh, in terms of just like number of, of deer, you know, number of tags doesn't necessarily equate to number of su successful harvests. Uh, I've kind of, you know, come to the realization that. Uh, you know, depending on what your goals are, obviously, if you have eight tags, we'll just throw out a number, but you're constantly bouncing back and forth and you're only able to put, you know, two or three days at each one of those tags versus let's say you have three tags, but you're able to spend, you know, a third of the season toward each of those tags. Well, I'd argue that the second scenario is just as likely to net you the same amount of venison in the freezer. So the second thing that I have on my list here is, is somewhat related to the first, but it really, really kind of applies in, in our scenario. Or if you have a scenario where you're hunting with other people, uh, in particular, if you guys are trying to film each other, I know that's definitely become more and more popular over the last couple of years, you know, going out as a, a group, uh, to some of these out of state trips and making it, you know, a nice fun travel hunt, two, three guys. If you all have separate tags and you're all doing your own thing, once you get out there, it's not really as much of an issue, but if you're trying to sort of tag team on those individual sits, it can become very hard again, from a focus standpoint to make sure that each one of those tags get the kind of, gets the kind of time that it deserves. And for Sam and I, 
uh, you know, Nebraska trip is a perfect example in North Dakota, I guess. Any, any of our out-of-state trips that we did last year uh, that we were hunting together, we both had tags. But because we were both trying to fill those tags, we had to kind of pick and choose. Okay, well, this this day, for whatever reason, you know, we're going to hunt for Sam. And I'll film and we'll try and get, uh, you know, a doe or a young buck or whatever we have an opportunity at and get it on film. And then maybe we glass up a, a deer one day and okay, tomorrow Garrett gets to hunt. Right. And then we go back to hunting for Sam. Um, whereas if we were just hunting for Sam and that was the only thing that we were doing, we'd have a better likelihood of filling her tag. Conversely, if we were just hunting for me and we only had that one tag and Sam was just filming, then we'd have a much better opportunity at filling that tag. And so what Sam and I have kind of discussed and, and kind of decided is that we'll do exactly that moving forward. If we're going on an out-of-state trip, only one of us is going to have a tag. It'll either be her and I'll just dedicate all of my time toward helping her fill that tag and filming, or it'll be the other scenario in which I'm the only person with a tag and she'll tag along and film. And I think overall, because of the amount of additional focus, especially on those short trips, that should help us out. And I, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind, if you are going on one of these types of hunts with, um, you know, a small group that if you're going to go together, try and make sure that you're giving each individual tag that you guys have the amount of dedication and time that it deserves. Um, and if you don't think that, uh, that's a possibility for everybody having a tag, then then maybe only one or two guys gets a tag. I think that's more popular maybe for larger game like elk or moose where you'll get guys that go out and only one guy will have a tag and everybody else will just kind of help out. But then there's a whole ton of meat and everybody kind of shares in that success. Um, just kind of keep that contextually in mind when you're thinking about deer hunting as well. The next item I had on my list here was segmenting out my hunting season a little bit better. And I have done a better job of doing this over the last couple of years, but it kind of again goes back to trying to spread yourself too thin over the course of any individual season and especially trying to bounce back and forth. We did a better job this year of focusing on early season areas and then starting to focus really on fewer areas during the rut time frame, and then focus on other hunts for late season. But I think that really we could have, there were still opportunities for us to improve on that even more to where, like I said, early season, it's just going to be one tag. We'll be hunting on our own, but we'll be hunting in the same areas. And so we're giving that particular tag a lot of time and a lot of focus. And we'll be focusing specifically on areas that from an early season perspective have isolated food, isolated bedding. So they're easier to set up on. They're easier to hunt. They're easier to call your shots. They're easier to scout for in the off season. If you know kind of what you're intending on hunting. So like in this case, we'd be looking for bedding areas when we're scouting that are adjacent to, let's say like lone white oaks or clusters of white oaks, something where if that food source is hot, you know that the deer are going to be going there. They're not traveling a long distance and you can easily set up uh, between one and the other and not focusing so much in areas that are like bigger woods where there's still a lot of forbs and early season browse or areas like ag that might be getting more, you know, early season hunting pressure on field edges or hunting areas like hill country where even though they might have great pinch points during the rut, again, the food is, is more dispersed throughout the forest. And so the deer don't have to necessarily walk as far and they're less predictable when they do get to that food. Uh, so that's kind of the early season focus. And then as we transition to late October and November, it's just going to be focusing on one state during that rut time frame until those tags are filled. 
and then late November will be focused toward either a rifle tag or a late season out of state rut trip. And that'll only be decided based on what has happened up to that point. What tags are still there, what tags have not been filled. And then late season is going to be kind of like a catch all, uh, for any tag that still is left at that point. Uh, I won't be doing Iowa again next year. I'm just going to apply for points and maybe do that, you know, every four or five years for archery, because, you know, one of the things that I've been learning is that throwing in that late season Iowa hunt really detracts from some of the other late season bow hunting I could be doing in the States to have more boots on the ground experience with hunting and, and might ha- you know, by that time still have available tags. The next thing that I have, you know, kind of switching gears here is talking about trail cameras and specifically running trail cameras in some of the, the bigger woods type areas. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, with last year's strategy, I put out more cameras in the summer. I had an extra year of scouting. I knew where a lot of the scrapes uh, were going to show up. I knew some good primary scrape locations. And so I put a lot of trail cameras out during the summer to try and get some, you know, velvet inventory. And what I learned, at least in this particular area, is that some of the deer, the boxes, especially in the summertime, were relocated into areas that I didn't have access to. You know, they were off a mile, mile and a half away feeding on uh, beans or, or alfalfa, as the case may have been. <clears throat> and some of those deer just weren't going to show up until those food sources started to transition into other, you know, mast and, and later season food sources, fall food sources. Uh, I did get a lot of pictures of does and fawns during the summer months. And in all of those places where I was getting very consistent pictures of doe groups, those definitely still were really good areas in October and November. So that's like, I guess, one thing to say is if you don't, if you don't know the area super well, throwing out some cameras in the summertime and getting a lot of doe group inventory is not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that you're not getting bucks there doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good spot. It just might mean that it's not going to be a good spot until it gets closer to the the rut phases. Uh, We did get some pictures of deer, velvet bucks early season. And you're talking like July, August, as they were kind of growing their antlers, but it was very sporadic. It was almost kind of like they were just passing through, uh, occasionally. And I don't know if it was just because they're spending a large majority of their time in some of those far off ag sources, um, and just kind of making movements occasionally, almost kind of little, just like, uh, you know how the deer will take those little excursions where they'll go back and, um, either make a big loop or maybe go back to their, their summer range to be able to descent check for does. Maybe it's something like that where they're just kind of previewing the areas that they're going to be transitioning to in the fall, or perhaps they're just so spread out with the amount of food that's literally everywhere, uh, between the forbs, the, the grasses, the, um, the ag that is, you know, somewhat far off, but then also just the fact that there's greenage everywhere. It's, it's the highest food density time of the year. And so trying to get very pinpointed pictures, even on some of those scrape locations, it was still very sporadic, uh, unless you had some of the scrapes that were maybe on the edges of those ag food sources, at least that was my experience. So I didn't think that there was as much advantage running those cameras in the summer as I hoped there would have been. I didn't really get a whole lot of additional inventory that I didn't start to get once early October and mid October started to to roll around mid October. I started getting pictures of bucks that I expected would have been there but I didn't necessarily get summer inventory of them. Um, so I think going into next year, the takeaway is that if I'm going to go try and get inventory early season, it's going to be from a glassing perspective, more so than 
from a trail camera running perspective, the actual trail camera inventory that I want to get for hunting in the rut is probably going to be most effective starting in like that mid October timeframe. So perhaps I'm not going to worry about draining those batteries out early season, just kind of run out and put them in the, in the woods as it gets closer, as the, the leaves start to turn to colors, start to fall off the trees. Uh, maybe even some of those scrapes are starting to pop up at that point in time. And that'll number one, save batteries. It'll save you the headache of all the false triggers that you get. I also had a number of issues throughout the summer with bears, uh, just in general, it, the bear issue with trail cameras was pretty extreme. I'd say north of 50% of my cameras had some kind of bear issues with them. Sometimes they would just kind of grab the cord that was running from the solar panel to the camera and they would just rip that out. Uh, a number of occasions they grabbed the camera itself and kind of pulled it to where it was just dangling off the tree. Luckily, none of the cameras got destroyed, but I mean, for these cameras that are out three hours away from my house, uh, once that camera goes down, it's, it's kind of useless at that point until I go physically back out there and check it. And so some of those cameras I had intended with the solar panels on leaving them out the whole season, but the fact that they were messed up by bears in August meant that I had to go back in, out there anyway, uh, to get my scent in there and, and reset them. So definitely something to keep in mind. I think what I'll probably do next year also is put those cameras in areas where they are a little bit more elevated. I don't think that necessarily prevents the bears from getting to them, but putting them higher up definitely allows, it makes it harder for humans to find the cameras for one. It makes it harder for deer to see the cameras. I've had really good results with deer not getting spooked by the cameras when I put them up high, but the problem with putting them up high early season is there's just too much foliage. So I'm definitely going to not use as many early season trail cameras next year as I did this year. Also on the trail camera side of things, there's a couple different, I guess, thought processes behind these. One of these is on large pieces of land, spreading them out over a very large grid to just try and get general inventory where maybe you have one camera every, you know, four or 500 acres and you put it in the very best spot from an inventory perspective, say like on a primary scrape in that area. And if a deer is using that area, eventually he's going to wind up on that camera. The other one would be sort of clustering the cameras where you have maybe a smaller bedding area type of a spot, a clear cut or whatever that you, you know, pepper five, six cameras in there. And what I've learned after doing both of those is that the first one is good. If you're just trying to keep tabs on an area, it's not going to tell you a whole lot about how the deer use the land. It's just going to tell you sort of what's there or what is there throughout the course of the season. Some of those deer are only there for a short time period, but in areas where I don't really hunt them as much, but I want to try and keep tabs on them. That strategy is totally effective, but I have learned in areas where I've run the more clustered type of cameras is that I've been surprised on a number of occasions by what the, the data is telling me is, is the truth out in the woods, right? Like there's areas where last season I had bucks daylighting on October 16th on a large area, like three daylight pictures in like a 400 yard span. And it's just like, wow, how is that? Why is that deer moving that much in daylight on that particular day? And I wouldn't have guessed that to be the case, you know, had I only had one camera in that area, maybe you just get that one picture of that deer instead of, you know, three of them in the same day. The other thing that clustering the cameras sort of helped me to learn was a better idea of, of a deer's home range or even their core area. 
and this is more or less like on a specific deer area, um, there'd be certain cameras where maybe of the cluster, a certain buck would hit two of the cameras pretty regularly. And on the other side of the cluster, maybe there's a different buck that hits two or three cameras. Then there's some bucks that end up on all the cameras at some point. And kind of what it tells you is that from a core area perspective, or even like a transition range perspective where some of those deer are spending most of their time, you can say that deer a, well, he's, he's definitely spending more time over here. And if I want to get a better idea of that deer's total core area, I need to have more coverage, uh, over like beyond that other side where I have that boundary of that cluster. Um, and the same thing on the other side of the camera for the other deer. And so if you had like, in theory, if you had enough cameras, you could get a really good idea of all the, the deer in the area, but it's not really, I guess, practical in a lot of senses, but what it, it can still tell you is that, man, if this deer is only hitting this one camera, like on the very edge, maybe I want to go in and hunt there. I'm going to go in and scout and maybe I have the, you know, all my gear on my back and I go in there and I, I say my goal for the day, I haven't scouted this yet. I don't have any cameras back in here, but I know that this deer is probably using this segment of land as his core area. I study the maps on that a little bit more, go in there and then, and then maybe try and make a dedicated hunt that day that I go in and scout with the, the gear on my back. So there's advantages to both scenarios. I think, uh, I know a lot of guys that prefer just kind of the strategy behind using like a single inventory camera and then just using their skills to, to go in and try and hunt the, the deer that they know are in that vast area. Um, but then there's also guys like, you know, I've listened to Steve Shirk talk about cameras and he's a lot of times, uh, clustering cameras in certain areas to try and get a better feel for what specific deer are doing and how they're using the landscape. Um, he's probably a guy I'd like to get on the, the podcast to talk a little bit more detail about his strategies. Uh, but point being both can be effective and use whichever method makes the most sense for what you're trying to do. I learned a lot about ground hunting last year, more so than in previous years. In the past, when I've hunted off the ground and I've gotten successful, there's always been some degree of luck involved. Uh, and in many cases, the deer maybe knew I was there, knew something was not right, but I was still able to get an arrow off and kill the deer. And this year, there was a lot more deer that I had within easy bow range at ground level that I was passing on. You know, maybe it was a doe, maybe it was a fawn, maybe it was, you know, spikes, forks, um, whatever. But I had a lot of deer in, in that 10 to 20 yard range on the ground. And I, I learned a lot about what did and what didn't work in terms of cover. And I do have a whole podcast, I guess, on this, and I'll be doing some more YouTube videos that'll provide some visuals to go along with this. But, you know, a lot of the key basics go back to cover, right? Obviously the wind and the, the thermals, they have to be good. Uh, it seemed like no amount of side control is going to totally eliminate a deer that's on the ground ultra close to you from uh, kind of hinting that something was not right. So that definitely needs to be taken into consideration. Um, but cover was the next big thing. Is the sun in your, at your face? Is the sun at your back? Do you have, you know, ferns and blowdowns and, you know, grasses? What kind of cover do you have around you? Uh, if there's less cover, it means you got to be lower to the ground. You know, some guys have even taken shovels in and cut out a little depression for them to, um, to kneel down in so that their bow cam is just barely clearing off the ground. There's been times where I've sat literally with butt on the dirt, but then I've noticed also in areas where you have a little bit higher cover from grass or ferns, or in some cases deadfall, then you can sit on something like a stool, which is going to be much more comfortable and allows you to, to fidget much less. 
and allows you to kind of pick up the bow and and be able to come back to that nice slow easy draw without having excess movement that can help give you away uh, face cover also made a huge difference there as well I, I feel like so if you're interested in learning more about the ground stuff I, I did cover a lot of that in another podcast but definitely that was a huge learning for me this year in terms of figuring out what did or what didn't work and in some of those ground hunting setups you spend enough time on the ground you're thinking a lot about okay what trees could I potentially hunt in in this area because a lot of times I'm hunting the ground is because there's no good tree maybe there is a good tree but it's it's not it's too direct over the trail and you'd be shooting straight down uh, maybe there's a tree that's too exposed and you get busted too easily maybe there's a tree that there's not good enough shooting lanes in well, if you have the area, to, the ability to legally clear shooting lanes in the off season, then that's worth pursuing. So, uh, ground hunting is definitely not my preferred method unless it's the best option available. I also learned a lot about hunting the same spot multiple times. Historically, I've always kind of been a, a one and done type of guy, not really pay much attention to, uh, you know, scent control and just going in and hunting a given spot once and then just kind of making the assumption that I burned the bridge. I let my scent on the ground. So tomorrow I'm going to go hunt a different spot. And I think in certain areas that there's like totally a viable scenario, uh, in the early season hunting that I talked about a, a while back, that's pretty much what's going to be the goal. We're going to be able to find enough early season, good setup areas where there's isolated food and isolated bedding to where we can just kind of bounce from one to another to another until we end up sealing the deal. Uh, but with some of these bigger woods type setups, sometimes there's really good spots that a certain deer might only hit two or three times a week, even with similar weather conditions. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, if you can spend enough time there, you can get an opportunity, but all those days that you're not getting that opportunity, there's also other deer that are using those areas. There's does, there's fawns, there's other bucks that are coming through there. And so having a clean access was definitely huge, uh, in terms of being able to hunt the same place over and over again. But I also kind of feel like there, there may be some sort of merit to using some sort of scent control in that type of scenario. Um, scent control, I think is less important in the, the former scenario where you're just kind of hunting a new spot every time and maybe stage hunting an area it could almost be an advantage not to use scent control in a stage hunting type of scenario. But for some of these places where you know you're going to be going back to that same tree, uh, I made conscious efforts to touch as little vegetation as possible, you know, making sure I was ducking under stuff, not um, touching branches needlessly with my hands. Um, and I did wear rubber boots most of the time. I, I, there's a lot of, I guess, question marks around how effective some of these things are or aren't. Uh, but what I can say is that I was able to hunt the same tree four days in a row have bucks within 15 yards every single one of those days. And I don't know that that necessarily would have been the case hunting the way that I would hunt early season where I'm more haphazard about my scent. Um, I would always, you know, have a, as clean of an access as I could, but there were still deer that would get down, um, and walk over the, the scent trails that I used coming in and coming out. Like it was just unavoidable, uh, to some degree. Um, the true bulletproof setup is very hard to find. And, in some cases you can maybe make a more bulletproof access by, you know, downing a tree or whatever, or dragging a deadfall. But in some cases that's not necessarily legal. 
and in some cases you don't have that nice clean water access to be able to use to your advantage. Um, and, and you might be in a scenario where you just can't in, get into a spot clean and you're just going to hunt it until it can't be really hunted anymore until you've like hunted it out. But you know that over those first couple of, of sits that you put in there, you're going to have a really good opportunity. Uh, the first time that buck comes back in and hits that spot, hits that scrape, hits that scrape line on the down one side of that bedding area, you're going to be there waiting. And so I'll probably continue to, to do basically what I did last year, which last year was rubber boots, um, scent lock pants and scent lock gloves. If I knew that my head was going to be going through vegetation, I wore the hat and head cover. And then once I would get on stand, I would either wear something that had like a wind blocking membrane, which usually you're wearing a windproof membrane for deer hunting anyway, when it comes to the rut. Um, and then also the, the drop down face mask and head cover. But it, it seemed like a lot of times deer were so close that if they did get downwind of me while I was in the tree, they would still maybe sense that something was up. They didn't always spook, but a lot of times they would maybe stop, pause, sniff the air for a little bit. And so I'm still not totally convinced you can completely fool their nose if they're as close as possible. And I did have scenarios where I was say 22 feet up a tree and I had deer downwind at 30 yards and they definitely smelled me, but then they kind of calmed back down and kept doing what they were doing and feeding for the next half hour in a clear cut. That definitely happened. But unless you're doing like everything, which includes, you know, taking your bow out of your case and wiping it down, wiping down all of your you know, camera gear, um, wiping down your face, you know, rinsing out your mouth with a, a scent-free mouthwash. Like there's so many things beyond just using an, an ozone machine or like, uh, activated carbon layers t- to eliminate most of that scent. And in many cases, it's a total pain in the butt. I don't like doing it. I probably wouldn't go through the effort if I knew I was going to hunt a different tree every single day. But it did seem like in some of those scenarios where I was hunting the same spot over and over and over again, that I was able to get away with more than I thought I should have been able to get away with. And perhaps doing some of that scent control stuff made a difference there. One thing that I learned on my Iowa hunt, which was a late season muzzleloader hunt, was in terms of kind of the debate over, do you pick a big piece of land that you can roam around a lot in, or do you go for a small parcel? We've all heard of success stories where guys will go and hunt small pieces of land that are overlooked and have great success because they're the only guy out there. Everybody else is focusing on the big piece of land. But the small piece has a downside definitely as well in that it's so much more sensitive to any pressure that is there. You know, if you have guys that are going out there pheasant hunting in late season, or you have some people that go in and hunt it on the weekend and maybe you're there on a weeknight or vice versa. Some guys hunting that on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, and you only have the weekend. So you don't even know that it's been hunted and you're just assuming that maybe it's still good. Like it doesn't take as much pressure to definitely push those deer off into pockets where they are not feeling the pressure as much. And in, in many cases that, pocket that they get pushed into might be across the boundary on, on private land. And so when I was trying to locate deer to go after, I used a mix, you know, I scouted some areas that were huge, but could only cover, you know, what I deem might be really good portions of those. Uh, there's just not enough time to really scout the whole thing. Or I looked at the smaller spots and it just so happened in that scenario that the smaller spots is where I found some of the bigger deer. However, those smaller spots also ended up getting pressure and that pressure was enough 
to where those older deer moved on to bedding on the private and coming down onto the public after dark. And in hindsight, I would have said, okay, I'm just going to not fo- I only have a limited amount of time to scout. I have a limited amount of time to, to set myself up on the first like week of scouting to have maybe two good days to hunt in that type of scenario. And so I wished in hindsight, I would have just focused on only the bigger parcels to where if I do find good sign and I do find deer out there using them, I can actually go and relocate and figure out where those deer are bedding. And if I, I do bump them out, let's say myself, uh, I still have the opportunity to maybe get back on, on those deer again. The smaller pieces could absolutely be great, but again, there's just so much risk that on a really short, a really short hunt like that, you might find yourself in a scenario where you've burned two or three days and that's enough time for you to realize that you're not set up in a really good position to be able to kill the deer on the small piece. And now you got maybe one or two days of hunting left. What are you going to do? Whereas if you have the big piece, whatever you find, you can kind of stay on uh, throughout the duration of that scouting and hunting. The last thing I had here was filming on the list. And I'm not going to talk, I guess, a whole ton about the, the big camera, the main camera with the camera arm. I was using a nicer DSLR this year. As expected, it was harder to use in a camcorder, but the footage quality was better. That's kind of the trade-off. Low light was phenomenal. Um, but I'm thinking more in terms of some of the smaller cameras that I was using as second angles or like the 360 cameras. I tried using a couple different methods of using the 360 cameras this year. I tried using the loop mode on my Insta360 ONE R. The advantage of the loop mode is that you can just leave it kind of run and it just sort of records over itself in a five or 10 minute cycle. But then once you hit the record button, it saves the last, you know, five or 10 minutes, whatever you have the, the thing set to. So it makes a lot of sense from a deer hunting scenario because you can just have that thing running on loop mode hooked up to a battery. And then a deer comes in, you don't have to worry about the camera at all. You pick up your bow, you focus on the hunt, you make the shot and then everything dies down, deer runs off, you can go ahead and hit that record button and save the last, you know, several minutes of footage. It makes a lot of sense from that standpoint. It keeps the file sizes manageable. But the issue that I had was that I was getting a lot of, you know, errors and glitches and, and the camera would freeze up a little bit when I had it on loop mode. So that alone just kind of made me not be able to trust it. And unless I'm able to to find a different camera or the more reliable loop mode. Like if they implemented it on the one X two, then perhaps I'd go back to that again. Uh, but with a camera like the Insta 360 one X two, you have a quick capture. So you can have the camera totally turned off and then you're able to hit the button and it powers it on and starts recording all in one motion. So you don't have to turn it on. And then as a second step, hit the record button, which loses a, a few seconds, which is very valuable in a lot of scenarios. So that's what I ended up using most often was just that Insta360 1X2. I'd have it hooked up to a battery bank. And when I would hear a deer starting to come in, I'd reach up, hit the power button, and then focus on the hunt. The one time that that did come back and bite me <clears throat> was when I had the deer on the ground and I had a deer come in from right behind me. And I couldn't move. I didn't couldn't see the deer, so I didn't want to move knowing that it could potentially see me and bust it before I even got an opportunity to see what it was. So I let that deer come past me. And then once I had an opportunity, then I went up, hit the camera, turned it on, then grabbed my bow and, and drew back and turned around and ended up not getting a shot. So in that scenario, had I been running the camera on loop mode 
or number two, had I just had the camera running continuously, just recording for a long time period on the external battery bank, in either one of those scenarios, that extra second or two that I saved from not having to turn the camera on, number one, it would have allowed me to get the footage of that deer walking right past me, which would have been phenomenal footage. Uh, but number two, it probably would have allowed me to, to get a shot off, whereas that second or two that I lost was so critical in that particular scenario because I wasn't able to get the deer to stop. It was, you know, leaving the shooting lanes that I did have, and I didn't feel comfortable with the shot opportunities that I had, you know, once I was at full draw and, and kind of realized that the deer was not going to stop. So the learning point from this is if I'm in a scenario where I think I'm going to have time to turn the camera on, let's say I'm up in a tree, I can hear it's a quiet day. I can hear a long ways. I'll probably have the camera turned off and I can turn it on when I think a deer's coming in. But if I'm in a scenario where I know I'm not going to have time, or maybe it's a windy day, there's a lot of noise. I'm not going to be able to hear a deer coming from a long ways off. They're probably just going to be right there and just sort of appear within range. And that type of scenario, I'm much more likely now to just leave that camera recording for the entire duration of the hunt. And if I get three hours of footage, so be it. I'm just going to, you know, save what I need, delete the rest and move on to the next day. The other filming thing that I learned, you know, could be very valuable, especially if you're a guy who just wants that one camera, you want that one GoPro or whatever to be able to, to capture everything. And you want it to be nice and simple. Having it mounted on the bow definitely makes a lot of sense. But in terms of where you put it on the bow, having it on a stabilized, like an adjustable stabilizer mount, you know, we used Ram mounts, um, to be able to screw it into the stabilizer mount. And actually this is an idea I got from Carl Kosuth with his 360 camera. Uh, you have that little Ram ball mount that screws into your stabilizer mount on your bow. And then you have the camera positioned in such a way that you can hit the record button while you're at full draw. You can reach up and hit it with your pinky or middle finger, ring finger, whatever makes the most sense. But in a true scenario where you might get caught off guard again, then that allows you to go ahead and just focus on the hunt. And if you need to, you can go ahead and hit that record button literally at any point in time. So that could definitely end up saving you an opportunity. The downside with any of those types of filming setups is that the footage of the shot itself is not going to be great. It's not terrible on some of the more modern cameras, but it's, it's definitely not, uh, it's not going to be the same kind of qualities if you had that camera mounted on your head from like a Solvid camera mount, or if you have like a clip mount onto the bill of your hat, that'll definitely be better footage quality. So again, if you're thinking about this type of scenario, and maybe you're the guy who's thinking about getting into filming, but you're not sure what kind of camera to get, or if you just want to have that like one thing, if you have a 360 camera, the advantage there is you can have just that one thing to film everything. Uh, but the file sizes are going to be much bigger. It's going to be more editing work and your pixel density is not going to be as good. So like whatever you're looking at, if you're going to crop in and look at that deer at 20 yards, it's going to look much better on a, like a 4k action camera than it would on a 360 camera. So those are all things to keep in mind. Uh, I would say that a really good all around system is one that I used to use quite a bit in the past, which is just a 4k action camera on a head mount. And you have to make sure that head mount is turned a little bit to your bow arm side. So it's not facing directly straight in front of you. Cause if you do that, when you come to full draw, the camera is going to aim too far off when you turn your head and you'll miss what you're trying to, to shoot. So definitely make sure that thing is off to your, your bow arm side 
facing that direction a little bit. And if you have the time, then you can go ahead and turn that camera on, on your head and you're going to get pretty decent footage quality. The 360 camera is going to give you some advantages, but hopefully that kind of helps you make the decision uh, between going with one or the other. So that kind of covered the main things that I had in terms of my learning for the 2021 season. If you guys have any additional questions, want me to go into additional detail on any of the topics I covered in this podcast, feel free to shoot me a message. Uh, Instagram messaging is usually the easiest place to get a hold of me. I think sometimes all the Facebook messages kind of get harder to manage and get lost a little bit more often than the other ones. Uh, so DIY underscore sportsman would be the place to look at for that uh, Instagram account and where you can go ahead and send me any questions. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.